Hi, this is Kim Dixon, and welcome back to Weber County's Greatest Generation and Part 4 of Private Lyle Knudsen's story as a prisoner of war in the Philippines during World War II. So last time, we ended with Private Knudsen and the two other survivors from the Shinyo Maru that had been sunk by the U.S. Navy, finding a friendly Filipino who was taking them to safety. So going back to his story, he said, We departed with the Filipino, taking turns with two riding on a caribou and two walking. By midday, we had left the trail and entered an area where the Filipino had built one of his evacuation homes. It was nothing more than a one-room shack with a roof. We stopped here for some much-needed rest and food consisting of rice and minnows. The fish were more than an inch in length, including heads and tails, but didn't look too appetizing. But they added flavor to the rice, and we enjoyed the meal. So he goes on to say that they continued to travel after they rested and ate, and said that they'd constantly been gaining altitude from the beach. And in the late afternoon, they reached their destination, a small community made up of Philippine families. The families were already aware of the disaster, and they had organized a rescue effort, scouting the beach and looking for other survivors. They soon started to arrive with others, and that continued through the night. They found some dead bodies, and they were buried on the beach. When the rescue ended, there were a total of 83 survivors. And so after the war, we found out the story, and the Shinyo Maru was only one of several freighters that were sunk by the United States that had POWs on board. After the war, the Japanese stated that 25 ships carrying POWs had either been bombed or torpedoed, and none of the ships had been marked in any way that they were carrying prisoners of war. So they found out later on that on August 14, 1944, American intelligence had intercepted a Japanese message noting that the Shinyo Maru was to unload rice and cement currently in her holds at Zamboango, Mindanao, and unload the remaining goods at Manila, Luzon, both in the Philippine Islands. As further messages were decoded, the Americans followed Chinyo Maru's footsteps as she sailed in the Philippine waters, and a message intercepted at 0200 hours on September 7th noted that she was to sail with convoy C076 from Manila with 750 troops on board. An intercepted message dated September 10th, 1944, gave the Americans the confirmation that 150 Japanese Army personnel were killed from the sinking, but at the same time there was a sudden influx of American POWs arriving on the beaches of Mindanao and received by local resistance fighters, and they realized that the Shinyo Maru had been carrying American POWs. So going back to Private Knudsen's story, we were all in need of immediate medical attention. More than half of us had busted eardrums. Several had deep scalp wounds that happened when they were being shot at by the Japanese. Others, including myself, received less threatening wounds from the bullets fired when we made our escape. A bullet had creased the side of my foot, which I wasn't aware of because of all the other injuries I received from the coral. My legs were almost double their normal size due to the poison and the swelling. A young girl gave me a pair of her slacks to wear, of which I was most thankful. They gave me comfort and much relief from the flies. The Philippine families were trying to provide as much comfort and care as they could. They didn't have any medication, so they used anything available to try to provide comfort to us. Large banana leaves were used to wrap the most serious wounds between treatments of sponging and cleansing with water. Those with damaged eardrums were heating sticks in fires until they were red with heat and then holding them next to their injured ears. 
The heat helped to relieve the pain and provided some healing. Private Knutson reported that the most seriously injured man died the next day. And as time went on, they realized that they were creating a great burden on the families who had families of their own to care for. Many of those Filipinos did not live in the immediate area and had to travel several kilometers each day to help out. So they decided that those with the less serious injuries would travel to the homes of those families, and that would eliminate the time they spent traveling back and forth to care for them and leave time for their own families. And he also said that many of them by now needed only food and shelter. They were also told that the time that they spent there would be short. And he says, I never could understand the communication was achieved so easily and simply. The method they used was so effective, they didn't need telephones. Important information would travel rapidly over great distances and available to anyone who was concerned. Three of us were adopted by one of the families and we were taken to their home about two kilometers away. Their home was built on stilts, as was the custom in the Philippines. It consisted of one large room that could be divided into separate sleeping areas by bamboo drapes suspended on wires. We slept on mats on the floor. The family consisted of two young boys, approximately five and seven years old, and a younger daughter. He said they were feeding a small pig, which they kept in a pen under their home, and the children would feed it by dropping scraps of food to it. The parents told them that the pig would be killed for a feast on the last day that they spent with them. And he also talks about the love and respect that the Filipinos had for the Americans. They were so generous, and the prisoners of war had to refuse many of the things that they wanted to do for them. He doesn't say how long he was there. They could hear aircraft, but he said it sounded far away. There was a small stream nearby, and he spent a lot of time soaking his legs, and that the swelling and the rash were receding. Sometimes other Americans would join him at the stream, but most of the time they sat by the fires with their sticks, trying to heal their ears. So one day, he woke up with chills and fever, and he knew that he had malaria. He said he spent most of the day trying to keep warm. He had lost his appetite, but managed to drink some chicken broth while he was sick. So the next day, they were taken to a beach with deep waters, and they were told that there was a submarine that would surface just off the beach, and that they would be taken aboard the submarine and taken back. He says, because of my weakened condition, they decided to move me on travois, pulled behind a caribou. The other men took turns riding the caribou. Each day, my condition declined. I considered my only hope now was the submarine and the medication that I needed so desperately. We departed from our adopted home sometime the next day. I never did find out if they killed the pig for the feast. I was too sick to even care. Each time we crossed the stream, I would get wet, but it didn't bother me. All that seemed important to me was the distance we traveled, time that I couldn't waste, bringing me closer to the medication that I would need to survive. When we reached the beach, there were many others already there. Some had transported their fishing boats to help move us from the beach to the submarine. It was late in the afternoon when we were informed we would be picked up the following day. I had received no food or water. I was too sick and too weak to be hungry. I received constant attention from the Filipinos and the other POWs. They propped me up to give me food and water. I wasn't hungry, but I knew that I needed the nourishment. I managed to swallow a few teaspoonfuls, but it wouldn't stay down. There were others on the beach just like me, immobile and helpless each having different injuries or ailments, but I believe that I was the only one with malaria. The submarine didn't appear the next day. It was disappointing to all, but for me it was like losing my only chance for the medication that I prayed would save my life. 
I remember very little about the next day. They tried different varieties of food and nourishing liquids, hoping to find something my stomach would tolerate. Everything I swallowed came up almost immediately. Later, I was told I was delirious most of the time between periods of consciousness and semi-consciousness. I slept restlessly. No one could understand my incoherent speech. Another day had gone by and the submarine still didn't arrive. I only remember one unforgettable event that occurred the next day. I must have been holding on to a very thin strand of life, separating me from a place that I wasn't ready to go. I was roused by someone telling me that the submarine had arrived. I was propped up to where I could see the ocean. I could make out a very large black object. It was of some distance away, but it looked to me like a small island. There is a picture that I will never forget, and it is stamped permanently in my mind. Two sailors were approaching to pick me up and carry me to the boat. They were bare-chested, and they were well-tanned. Their size was impressive with huge arms, muscles, shoulders, and chests. They resembled health and strength, the likes of which we POWs had almost forgotten. I will always remember this moment. He goes on to say that they took him out by a boat and tied a rope around him to lower him into the hatch. He says he faintly remembers receiving the shot in each hip before they put him to bed. He didn't wake up for almost two days. The fever was gone and he was weak, but he was much improved. A sailor from the kitchen asked him if there was something that he wanted to eat. He asked for canned fruit. The sailor returned with a large can of peaches. He said it was so delicious and he had no problem eating the entire can. My health and strength improved daily from that time. Many of the POWs who had been trying to feed me and keep me alive on the beach were congratulating me on my recovery. Some told me that they never expected me to be alive by the time the submarine came. I believe that when a person's health sinks to that condition, time can be only encountered on either side, separated by a very minor ingredient such as prayer. And he talks about the first music he had heard in over two years on the submarine. He says, I still remember both selections played, Born to Lose and No Letter Today. The first time I heard music, tears began to roll down my cheeks. I suppose they were tears of happiness, but it took the sound of music to trigger their release and make them flow. They docked in New Guinea, where there were personnel waiting for them. They were taken to a barber shop, had showers, and received new clothing. That evening, they were served what he says was the most delicious meal and taken to see our first open-air outdoor movie. He doesn't say he remembers much, but it was too much excitement to absorb in one day. The following day, they were picked up by bus and taken to an airstrip to fly to Brisbane, Australia. While they were there, they received a debriefing and thorough medical examinations. Their eyes, ears, and teeth were examined, and any necessary medical attention was given. He said that everyone needed dental work. The most seriously wounded POWs were immediately airlifted to the United States, and the other prisoners followed on a large transport. So they got back to the United States um, sometime in October of 1944 when they arrived in San Francisco. All of them were invited to go to a welcome home party at the White House, but he had decided not to go. He says, my mother was living in Ogden, Utah, so I declined and bought a ticket on a passenger train leaving for Ogden. To attend the party would have delayed me another four or five days. So this brings us back to where we started with a Standard Examiner article dated November 15th. Ex-captive home from islands. Private Lyle Knudsen, 24, son of Mrs. Nellie Knudsen of 2562 Van Buren, 
one of 83 American prisoners rescued in the Philippines several weeks before the invasion by General MacArthur's troops, is now back in Ogden visiting relatives. Following a 30-day furlough, he believes he will be sent to a rest camp in California before being reassigned. He closes his story with, I managed to survive the time I spent as a Japanese prisoner of war, as well as the disaster that followed enabling my escape. When I was discharged, I was rated 100% disabled. I tried to resume a new and normal life after leaving the service, but I never overcame the habit of smoking in bed. And this was one of the things he talked about earlier of what he missed so much was smoking before he went to sleep. He says, just before going to sleep, I would remember my friends and the times we enjoyed in the evening. I couldn't sleep without this memory and my location or the passage of time didn't make any difference. In April 1947, the Air Force offered him an opportunity to waive his disability and re-enlist in the service, granting me privileges unheard of and never before available. I accepted their generous offer and re-enlisted, retiring June 30, 1964, with just over 23 years of service. He died on July 24, 1999, in Pocatello and is buried in the Pocatello Cemetery. Those 83 survivors of the Shinyo Maru had occasional reunions, and in June of 1998, they were invited to Texas for a plaque dedication at the Nimitz reunion. Texas Governor George W. Bush welcomed them and in a letter said, Your sacrifice for our freedom, as well as for others around the world, will always be remembered. Texas and this governor salute you for your courageous service and contributions to our country. Under the most difficult of conditions, you help preserve and protect the liberties that we all hold dear. Their last reunion was held in the year 2000. So that is the end of Private Lyle Knutson's story. It's been really amazing because he's told it as a survivor, and we don't get that very often. So join us next time. We have a story about one of our Air Force personnel who was in um, Normandy on June 6, 1944, and he was killed on that day. Thanks.